Well, the Winter Olympics have arrived. Um, I always uh, sincerely enjoy watching the Olympics, whether that be the Summer Olympics or the Winter Olympics. I know when it comes to the Winter Olympics, Jamie likes the figure skating. I like basically anything that has to do with skiing or snowboarding. Uh, but there's just a wide assortment of sports that you can watch. And it's really cool, uh, at least for me, to see the best athletes in the world uh, compete with one another. And it's cool to see the whole world unite and get together for these games where temporarily we can put aside our differences and get along. I know that's uh, a bit different uh, this time around because of some of the tension uh, between China and some of their human rights issues. Uh, but beside that, it's cool to see the whole world come together in, in unison uh, with these games. And I did see that America did finally get on the board last night with a silver medal, so that was cool uh, to see. But the Olympics, they started uh, long before uh, the USA was ever a nation, at least the ancient Olympics, not, not talk about the modern Olympics. The first recorded Olympic Games were held at Olympia, and anyone want to guess the day? Any guesses? The first recorded game of Olympics. Any guesses? What was that? 12 AD. Any other guesses? Come on, don't be shy now. Your history teacher got any guesses? 500 BC. All right. Well, there we go. It's, uh, the, the first recorded Olympic Games were held at Olympia in 776 B.C. Um, and in the days, so that was back in and during like the Greek Empire. And in the days of the ancient uh, Greek Empire, poetry and sport uh, were, went hand in hand at athletic festivals like the Olympics. Oftentimes, poets would sing um, poems about the greatness of these athletic champions and all of their achievements. Um, and sometimes these poets even competed in these events. They, I'm not sure how exactly, but they compete in, in, in song and poem. And uh, yeah, so they went hand in hand a lot of times, sport and poetry. And today, we're not going to necessarily talk about how poetry goes hand in hand uh, with the ancient Greek and, and, and sports, but we are going to be talking a lot about poetry today, specifically speaking about biblical poetry, as we're continuing our series on how to read the Bible. Uh, basically, throughout uh, this series, we've, we've been talking about really the basics of the Bible, really going shallow level here. How can we better understand the Bible? Because the goal in going throughout this series is to help eliminate the instance of where you're sitting at your house, whether that be on your couch, your lucky chair, your bed, wherever it may be, and you sit down to read the Bible for 5, 10, or 15 minutes, and at the end of it, you ask, what in the world did I just read? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, I'm going to say every single one of us have been there as we're sitting down and reading God's word and, and we ask, what, what did I just read? And hopefully, as we go throughout the real basics of the scriptures, we can have a better understanding of what God is trying to tell us through his word. And so from here on out, we're breaking down each section of the Bible, and today that brings us to uh, the five books of poetry. Next week, we'll finish up uh, the Old Testament with the prophets, and then we'll uh, talk about the New Testament for a couple weeks as well. So we are nearing uh, the end of this series. I hope it's been fruitful for you.
But as I mentioned, there are five books of poetry. Those five books of poetry are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. If you were to open your Bible about halfway in the middle, you'd come across, well, I did a bad job, but I ended up in Isaiah. But you'd probably end up in around Psalm or Proverbs. So we're, we're getting closer. We are in the back half of the Bible now and talking about these five books of poetry. And this five books of poetry is going to be a bit misleading because 100% of the material is not, or not 100% of the material is about poetry. There's indeed a lot of poetry in these five books, but it's not 100% poetry throughout uh, these five books. Some people refer to these five books as wisdom literature. Some of you guys may prefer uh, that term more and, and, and how we can attain lots of wisdom through these different writings. And so when we talk about a poem today, the basic component of a poem is one line. Every poem is constructed of lines, and it's when we combine a handful of different lines together, we then have a poem. And in modern literature, nearly all poems have a cadence or a meter to them. They flow with a rhythm. We say roses are red, violets are blue, uh, the dog is my favorite, but you're okay too, or whatever you want. There, there's a lot of different renditions of that poem. Roses, roses are red and violets are blue. I saw that one online, and so I wanted to pick that one out. Um, I liked it. The dog's my favorite, but you're okay too. Um, but it, whatever, however you finish that poem, roses are red, violets are blue, uh, they all follow that cadence. They all follow that rhythm. And a lot of times in different poems that we recite as well, they rhyme. Like, violets are blue, the uh, dog might hear it, but you're okay too. There, there, there's a rhyme there. So oftentimes we see a cadence, a rhythm, and then we also see a rhyme. And that's very, very common for poetry in our modern day setting. You're going to add to it? That's, that's a dangerous uh, game there, Anita. Uh, but uh, biblical poetry is not composed uh, like that. It's not composed with cadence or rhythm. And a lot of times, this biblical poetry does not rhyme. Rather, biblical poetry has two key elements. The first key element of biblical poetry is parallelism. And the second uh, key element of poetry, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is figures of speech. So parallelism. According to the Bible Project, uh, biblical poetry consists of couplets. A couplet is uh, two lines grouped together. They're placed beside each other. And this first line in this couplet, it makes a statement, it, whatever statement uh, that it is. But then the second line develops that statement. The, the second line of a couplet, it can deepen uh, the thought of the original statement, it can complete the thought of the original statement, or it can even contrast that original statement. And so a lot of the couplets that we read throughout their scriptures, they either complete or they deepen um, the original statement uh, that was said. A key way to identify a couplet that, co that contrasts with one another is if you see the word but in there, B-U-T, not B-U-T-T. B-U-T, if you find that in the scriptures, uh, that, that's a pretty good indication that what you are seeing there is uh, a couplet that is contrasting one another. You have an original statement, but X, Y, and Z 
take place. And pretty much all of the poetry founded in, uh, in, in these five books of poetry, especially in the books uh, of Psalms and Proverbs, they are grouped in couplets. And, and thankfully, the modern day translators make it really easy for us to identify these different couplets that pair together because they literally, in the, all these different lines, they literally drop it down to the next line, this next part of this couplet. And and it's easy enough where we can do a random experiment. If you all take your Bibles right now, or even if it's on your phone, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Psalms. Go to any random Psalm, and I bet you you can identify a couplet uh, there. Here, I just randomly uh, flip my Bible open uh, to in the middle of the book of Psalms. And here uh, in Psalm 61 reads, Hear my cry, O God. That's, that's the original statement. If you want to follow along, this is Psalm 61, verse 1. Just a random one that, that I found open uh, my Bible to. Psalm 61, 1. Hear my cry, O God. That's the, that's the original statement. That's the first line there. And then the second line there, listen to my prayer. So here we see the parallelism in this, in that the second line, the second statement, it completes the thought of the first. Hear my cry, O God. And furthermore, Listen to my prayer. And if you look throughout all, especially in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, you can see it. But if you look through these different uh, forms of poetry in the Bible, you'll see that they are grouped in couplets. We have one statement and then another. And again, these statements can either deepen one another. The second statement either deepens it, it completes it, or it contrasts with what uh, the original statement had to say. And so that is a key element of poetry that you can see, especially in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. So that's the first key element of biblical poetry that's uh, different than poetry in modern day times, is that ancient poetry was all about parallelism, ancient Jewish or Hebrew literature, poetry, all about parallelism. Another key element of uh, ancient uh, Jewish literature or Hebrew uh, poetry is figures of speech. And this is nothing new to us because we use figures of speech in our language all of the time. That right there is a figure of speech, that we use figure of speech all the time. That is an exaggeration. We don't literally use figures of speech all of the time, but we use figures of speech a lot. And a figure of speech is basically something, uh, a word or phrase used in a non-literal sense. So when we say that we use figure of speech all the time, we don't literally mean that, but we say that to to make a a statement. And so there's a couple of different major forms of figures of speech found in uh, these five books of poetry. One of the key ones is simile. A simile is simply comparison between two things. We have an example here to go along with this. In Psalm, uh, the first Psalm, Psalm 1, verse 4, reads, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here in the Psalm, we, we, we can see the parallelism there. We see the wicked are not so, but we see the contrasting line here are like chaff that the wind drives away. And so here we see that word like. If we see the word like or as, we can be indicated that they're probably talking about simile here. 
And so in other words, what the author in Psalm 1 is saying is that the wicked are temporary, just like uh, the, the chaff that the wind drives away, kind of contrasting there in this psalm, the righteous from the wicked. Another common figure of speech found in biblical poetry is metaphor, where you compare two things without the use of a comparison word, like or as. This is it's probably for a lot of our uh, current students in here. They, they're probably the best ones in identifying this as they learn this sort of stuff in school themselves as well. But metaphor, comparing between two things without the use of a comparison word. We see an example of this in Psalm 23, verse 1, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, God is to me like a shepherd is to his sheep. God isn't literally my shepherd. He's not literally treating me as a sheep, but, but he treats me like a shepherd is to a sheep. In other words, a shepherd goes and he leads his sheep, he provides and he cares for his sheep. So when, when we read in Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd, it's not literal. That, that is a figure of speech there that our Lord, he guides us, he protects us, and he provides for our every need. Another common figure of speech is hyperbole. We have uh, uh, today in uh, modern times, we have a lot of experts with hyperbole, the use of exaggeration. Uh, we can see hyperbole uh, expressed in Psalm uh, 6, verse 6, where uh, the author writes, I am weary with my moaning. Uh, John was just talking about this earlier uh, this morning. This is, this is King David. I'm weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That didn't literally take place. There wasn't a literal, uh, his couch wasn't drenched. There wasn't a flood of tears. But basically what King David was saying here is in that night, he cried a lot. He, he was distressed with whatever was taking place at that time. So that's in hyperbole, the use of exaggeration. And the last uh, kind of common uh, figure of speech that we'll talk about this morning that we can find in the scriptures or especially in these five books of poetry is a rhetorical question, the use of a question to confirm or deny a fact. Psalm 106 verse 2 uh, reads, Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Question mark. In other words, the, the psalmist here is saying that you can't, you cannot declare all of God's mighty deeds because there are too many to count. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? It cannot be done. That is a rhetorical question there. And so those are the two key elements that we have to be aware of when we read through biblical poetry, the idea of parallelism, that two ideas connect with one another, whether it's uh, an idea that confirms or uh, completes it, or it can uh, contrast it as well. And now when we're talking about these five books of poetry, we can also break these uh, different books down into three different uh, groups. We can break it down into just the book of Job. We can break it down to just in the book of Psalms. And then also the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And you'll see why we group these three together in a bit. But this first uh, group here, just the book of Job. We're going to talk about Job here for just a couple of minutes. 
So Job takes place around the same time as Abraham. And if you remember, Abraham takes place near the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, about 2000 BC. And so scholars believe, we we can't know for certain, but scholars believe that Job took place around that same time that Abraham did. That can be a bit confusing because Genesis was uh, written like 14 or 15 or more like 16 books before uh, the book of uh, Job. And so that can uh, be a bit uh, confusing. Now, Job, uh, kind of the, the main question that Job seeks to answer throughout the book is why do good men suffer? That's what we see firsthand in this narrative, in the story of Job. As Job, we we read in the first couple chapters that Job was a righteous man. He was a righteous man after God's own heart, but all hell broke loose for the life of Job. And Job lost basically everything that he had. And so for the bulk of the book of Job, Job has this conversation with his three buddies uh, who weren't necessarily uh, the best buddies, trying to figure out why has Job suffered? Why do good men suffer? Why do righteous men suffer? And then finally, at the end of the book, after 30 plus chapters of Job's three friends trying to console him and give him advice, God shows up. And God kind of illustrates to us, he, he tells us that his ways are so infinitely grander than ours that we cannot even begin to understand his ways or his thoughts or his motives. And so sometimes we're not going to have the best answers to questions like, why do good people suffer? Just because God's ways are so much grander than ours. And so that's the book of Job, the first book of poetry, taking a look at that question, why do good men suffer? Psalms is the second uh, book of poetry that we can take a look at. The book of Psalms is simply a collection of 150 different verses or songs. Traditionally, they were categorized into five uh, different books, but here we have the one book of Psalms that uh, is composed of 150 uh, different verses or songs. And King David wrote nearly half of the Psalms. He wrote 73 out of the 150 Psalms recorded in the book of Psalms. And the rest were written by a handful of different people that uh, didn't write too many. And then 48 of these Psalms, so about a third of the Psalms, we have no idea idea who wrote uh, these different psalms. But whoever composed the book of Psalms, they lay their eyes upon these different poems or these different verses or songs, and they decide to include them in this collection of poems. And so since nearly half of the book of Psalms was written by King David, that means that for most of the book of Psalms, there's a 1,000-year gap between Job and Psalms, two books that go back to back. That can be uh, confusing as well. And when we're reading through the book of Psalms, there's five different uh, types of Psalms. We have Psalms of praise. We have many Psalms that share of the goodness of God. We see many of those Psalms. We also see many songs of lament, 
Or they express suffering to God like King David, where his bed was flooded with tears, where his couch was drenched with tears. And we see these songs, these poems of lament. We see poems, which might catch some people by surprise, of imprecatory, of calling for God's judgment, saying, God, this person, Joe, did this, and God, I want you to destroy, wipe Joe off of the face of the earth. We see a handful of different poems uh, like this in the book of Psalms where we are calling for God's judgment upon our enemies. We also see Psalms of Thanksgiving where we recognize the goodness of God and we give thanks to him. Thank you for this daily bread that you have provided for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being ever so faithful to us. And then finally, the, the, the last uh, main type of psalm that uh, we can read is the psalm of wisdom, where we are providing wisdom and insight for the reader, that we can learn to decipher from good and wrong, and we can uh, learn to live a wise life. So that's the book of Psalms. And then the last group uh, of books that we can group together, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, all three of these books were written by King Solomon. Now, Solomon was the son of King David and Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba, the same woman whom David committed adultery with and had her husband later killed in battle. That, that child that David originally committed adultery with uh, died because of the punishment for their sin. But then they had a second child, and that second child was Solomon. And so Solomon eventually became king of Israel after David, and God granted Solomon wisdom that surpassed the wisdom of everyone else. And so in all in his plethora of wisdom, Solomon wrote these three books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Proverbs uh, is a great book full of little bits and pieces of practical wisdom that we can apply to our lives today. And so there's, uh, 31 Prover- there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, if I remember correctly. And so a lot of people like to read one proverb every day of the month. And if you have a month that has 31 days, you can read through the entire book of Proverbs. And it's just a lot of real practical wisdom that you can apply to your life today. The second uh, book of wisdom literature or second book of poetry that Solomon wrote is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a really, really interesting book that takes a look at uh, the purpose of life and it takes a look at uh, the value of things. I know a handful of people, I have a couple of people that I look up to where uh, I've heard them say before that Ecclesiastes is their favorite book in the entire Bible. Do we have anybody who says Ecclesiastes is their favorite book of the Bible? Anybody in here? Not quite, no. Not my favorite, but uh, it's one of my favorites. I sincerely enjoy Ecclesiastes as Solomon and all of his great wealth and all of his great wisdom. He says, well, everything under the sun is meaningless. And he takes a look at the true meaning of life, the true value and purpose of life. And then finally, the last book of poetry is Song of Solomon. And it is a book all about 
love. And we're not talking about the brotherly uh, type of love. We're talking about the love where it's a great book to read on your wedding night. That sort of love. I'll leave it at that. And so Solomon goes into deep detail uh, into talking about the affection that a man has with his uh, wife and vice versa. So a great book about uh, love, the romantic type of love. And so those are the three books that Solomon composed. And so together, those are the five books of poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. You're not going to find a ton of narrative in uh, this section of the Bible. You're not going to find a ton of discourse. You'll find some discourse uh, in Ecclesiastes and Job. But again, mostly it is composed of poetry. So if you love poems, this is a section that can be special to you. I know uh, Anita and I are always talking about poems. She's always got a poem for me, and I love that. Um, And so I'm not big into poetry, but this is a great section of God's Word, and a lot of people like to take bits and pieces of it throughout the entire year where you might spend a couple months reading through all of the 12 books of history. That's a common approach. Another common approach when dealing with uh, the books of poetry is they'll spread it out through the entire year. So they'll read one psalm a day or one proverb in conjunction with reading the other pieces of scripture as well. And so with this bit of information, I hope that you can better understand uh, these five books of poetry, really vivid images that come to life when we read them, words that were written thousands of years ago, but words that are alive and well today. And we need to be reading this, absolutely, because of the price that was paid on behalf of all of us. So we'll be transitioning into communion. And so if you have not picked up your communion emblem, you can go ahead and pick it up behind Jacob and Stephanie there. But we've got to be digging in to God's word because this is God's love letter to you. God is writing this. God has composed this through uh, these different human authors, but it's inspired by God and God purposed for you to have it in your hands today. God purposed for you to be able to decipher and understand what he is telling you specifically. And so this morning, I'm going to read a a poem by M.S. Loundis that uh, talks about the beauty of communion, the beauty in the bread, which represents the body of Jesus being broken for us, and the beauty of the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus being poured out on behalf of us. So M.S. Loundus writes, I gave you life through giving of myself, my broken body and my blood poured out. So take and eat and have my life within. Remember that I have forgiven all your sins. So as you remember all that I did for you, my death on the cross and all the beatings too. But more than that, I rose from the dead and won the victory over Satan and of death. In your union with me, even though you may die, you can, now, you can know my victory and have eternal life. 
But until that time, come often to my table. Eat and drink of me, for I am truly able to conquer evil that war against the Lord, for I shall deliver those that I have called. And give unto you the peace I only give, so you may be led and begin to really live. Let's pray over the bed, bread. Father, we thank you for everything that this bread represents in our life. We thank you that you laid down your son, Jesus, and on the third day, you granted him victory over death. Father, we long for that day in which we can have victory over death, that victory that is only made possible through this bread and this cup and what they represent. And so, Father, I thank you for the body of your son, Jesus, being broken on behalf of each of us. And it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Let's partake of the bread together. Let's pray over the cup. Father, we thank you. We love you. Father, the price that was paid on behalf of us is a steep price. We recognize that this morning. And Father, I just pray that with the steep price that was paid for us, we take it and use it for your glory, that we seek you first and foremost that we seek to understand you and your son through your scriptures. And so, Father, I just thank you for all that you do for us. I thank you for this blood of Jesus that was spilt on behalf of us. And it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Let's partake of the cup together as a church. Father, you are good, you are grand, you're magnificent, you are worthy of our praise. And Father, your Son, Christ Jesus, is worthy of our praise as well. And we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.